The theme for the talk this afternoon is mindfulness and emptiness. I had mentioned the other day that recently I had been to Thailand and part of the purpose of my visit there was to meet with my two teachers, Ajahn Damodaro and Ajahn Buddhadasa. And at a um, meeting, a discussion with Ajahn uh, Damodaro, who is my principal Vipassana teacher, meditation teacher, he raised a, an interesting question in the course of the dialogue with him. And the question has a small background to it, and it's a background, I think, which is uh, relevant to everybody's situation here. And he referred to a classic talk of the Buddha, and this form of meditation work is based on this classic talk called the Satipatthana Sutra. Sutra or Sutta means talk. Sati means mindfulness. And Patana literally means station or foundation. And he asked me in the course of this dialogue, what does what is the significance of mindfulness as a station as a foundation. What is the significance of mindfulness as a foundation in spiritual practice? So I ummed and ahed with my responses and then he pointed out his perception and he said there I'm paraphrasing, of course. There is a day of meditation. We regard a day of meditation as a day of mindfulness. And mindfulness gives care and attention to every single activity of the day. Everything which we are engaged in is worthy of, our, of mindfulness, of giving care and attention to. And nothing is, is to be neglected nor disregarded with regard to that. So that from wake up to sleep, there is mindfulness. And sometimes it does happen as well that even in sleep, there can be a, a kind of quality of consciousness which is alert to that period of time as well. But generally speaking, we speak of the waking state in this particular environment as a day for mindfulness through all activity. And what was pointed out in the course of this uh, discussion with uh, the Ajahn is that we might say that the foundation of mindfulness is 
really the scope of the bodily life. And thus, as we sit on the floor, as an example, there is the consciousness at times of the frame of the body. The various sensations which are arising in different parts of the body and which communicate to us the form of the body, the, the shape of the body, the position of the body. So in speaking of the foundations of mindfulness, one very distinctive feature of this is what is occurring in the physical life and of course in the subtle life of feelings, uh, thoughts, what is occurring in the sense doors. So the whole field of mindfulness, the foundation or the station of mindfulness is located, generally speaking, we might say from head to toes and the whole extent of what our bodily life is actually engaged in. And it is said, therefore, that there is a significance to this. There is a value for a human being to be actively mindful. And from that basis, from this foundation of what is happening from head to toes, other factors of mindfulness begin rather naturally, rather effortlessly to have the opportunity to stand out more clearly. So in other words, if you and I are aware of our physical condition, in as many moments as possible through the day, that will effortlessly expose and reveal to us what else is going on with us. What's, what's our, what is the construction and the concoction these are words that the, Buddhist, the Buddha used, by the way. What is the concoction, what is the construction of our life as it reveals itself through the day? So mindfulness serves as a, as a station, as a foundation. And from that, we get the chance to see what else is occurring with us. What then is occurring with us, one of the elements and factors of this is of course the intentions which take place. There are some intentions which are inseparable from a spiritual mindfulness and these we give consideration to as the ethical factors. The Refraining, the absence of killing, stealing, sexual abuse, lies, abuse of alcohol, drugs, and so forth. These ba basic uh, criteria are expressed, again effortlessly, through the mindfulness of what's going on from head to toes. Then we bring into this, of course, a certain form as well. And the sitting form, the slow walking form, the uh, factor of being very conscious of the eating activity, 
All of this brings into the mindfulness, it brings a certain meditativeness. So the quality of mindfulness does seem to vary quite considerably according to the activity that's taking place. So because a strong message does go out here about the sitting posture, we sometimes will use as a criteria for people to make a personal retreat, as an example, that the person sits for, I can't remember what it is these days, four or five times a day. We'll put a lot of emphasis, not quite so much, on the value of walking meditation, that is slow conscious walking meditation, as distinct from just going out and taking a walk. So the sitting form and the walking form contributes sometimes usefully, hopefully, to a meditative uh, uh, mindfulness in particularized activities. This also can show itself with uh, eating, as I pointed out, when there's a reasonably upright posture, when there is the intention again to be giving care and attention to eating, it becomes of itself rather meditative. So the form gives support to the mindfulness and with the forms, sitting form, walking form, eating form as an example, it becomes and is experienced as being rather meditative, rather contemplative. One could have here a reasonably light day, light day would be generally felt to be a reduction of the form. So it seems like at times doing a lot of sitting, doing a lot of slow walking, eating very mindfully and slowly contributes to a certain, should we say, intensity or a certain extra energy which feeds into the mindfulness. When we are engaged in the form, and when we are not engaged with the form, and we go back and forth between the two, of course, during the day, the important thing is not so much the form in itself, it's what is the relationship, what is the mindfulness revealing to us. Whether inside the form, such as sitting, formally, or whether, as it were, outside of it, what's re being revealed to us. And the revelation is the important thing, not so much the form, not so much even the mindfulness, but what shows itself. If we have too much exaggerated value of being mindful, through too much will and too much effort and pushing ourselves too hard, the very willpower to be mindful may inhibit the revelation. 
So we can displace the balance of the day with form, out of form, with mindfulness, by exaggerating the place of mindfulness. It's a resource. It has a usefulness. It reveals experience. It reveals what's going on with life. But it's never an end in itself. It's never an end in itself. Yeah, some of the other activities, <coughs> brushing the teeth comes to uh, mind here, and other things of the day. We recognize quite often that much of what we do is extremely habitual, and it's something which we get familiar with and get very, very used to. And sometimes there is a genuine intention in such an activity, such as brushing one's teeth, to bring a real meditation and mindfulness to it. It may not make any difference to the colour of our teeth, <laughs> whether we are mindful of it or not. It may not make any feel very different to the quality of the experience there. We may not have any special revelations about whatever, impermanence, or not-self, or whatever, when brushing our teeth. The value is that in bringing mindfulness in a conscientious way to a single activity might be the key in that time or in another time here or years later which sparks the revelation. It's as though we're encouraging ourselves to be in such a way that we're not in habit, that nothing is a habit for us, that there's a certain freshness there. Not that the freshness is to be made and ended itself, but the freshness, the absence of the habit, the absence of the tendency generates a little space for some insight, for some revelation. All of this gives nourishment and gives authenticity to the experience of mindfulness, whether it's with the form, meditative form, or whether it isn't. When I was uh, in uh, Thailand, I met an old friend of mine, Iterit. And 
Ithrit had been ordained as a bhikkhu, as a monk, for eight years. And he, like myself, had the same teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And I first met this monk on the road to what Suanmok, Suan, what means monastery, Suanmok means Garden of Liberation, the monastery of the Garden of Liberation. And we had had, at that time, this is more than 20 years ago, some lovely uh, discussions, this was before I was ordained, and was certainly an influential factor in my life. I hadn't seen him for at least 16 or 17 years. And he related to me his experience of what it was to come out of the monkhood. And an experience significantly different from mine. But it's not an unusual one and there will be people in this room who can relate to his experience quite well and quite uh, personally. And he said that after his period of meditation, forest monk's life, looking into the things that you and I and others looking into, he felt he could handle, could accommodate this world. And he decided to disrobe. He went back to Bangkok, the, the city where he lived and was brought up. He completed some studies in architecture he qualified as an architect and he said for the first year after the monastic life he knew that being an architect, playing the role, doing all that one needs to do in that kind of role was just a game. He said he knew it. He knew that it was just theatre, he knew that there was nothing deep and significant in it, that what he was doing was of no uh, great merit in itself and he said all of this was very very clear to him even while his work colleagues were taking everything very seriously were taking everything as though they were ultimately very real and there was tremendous significance in the business transactions in the form of the architecture in the career in the lifestyle etc etc and a whole, he said a year went by for him in which he knew that he wasn't caught up in it, wasn't belonging to it, wasn't tied, tied to it. A year went by and into the second year he could feel at times a little bit more reality going on, a bit more substance to it. Being a good architect begin, began to matter more going out socialising with his friends in Bangkok began to take on more importance. It, money began to matter more. And things began to matter. He said to me, by the end of the second year, he could feel he was really back into it. And that, what was going on with his career, with himself and his wife, with his uh, lifestyle, with his home, etc., etc., and the bills and so forth, all began to matter. It had stopped being theatre. It had stopped being a game that you play. 
It's not being just something that you do while being empty inside. That emptiness of it all had been forgotten and it had mattered. And when it began to matter, he began to suffer about the present, about the future, about whether enough money would come in, about this, about that. And he said it was like he, all the realizations of the forest, of the monastery, of meditation, of the teacher, of, from the teacher and the teachings, it's like they'd been forgotten. And he was stuck and lost and unhappy and confused and trapped. So, there's sometimes these things are rather sobering news and, and hopefully not to uh, bring despair <laughs> to anybody here, but hopefully to look deeply here and to liberate ourselves once and for all no partial, short-term liberations and freedoms and enlightenment. So there's a situation where in different ways we begin, sometimes not even conceptually or mentally, but in different ways, begin to realize what silence is, begin to sense what emptiness is, begin to really observe the arising and falling of different roles and different function in functions in life without any major investment in that. And yet, how easily, in the course of time, all that which upon which mindfulness has its foundation can get forgotten. One can get right back into that which one is liberating oneself from. The identity with role, with position, with ego, with investment, with desire. So that could be happening here. What would make the difference? What would make the difference? What will liberate once and for all? So we don't find ourselves in the unhappy predicament and pain of the eaterits of the world. In the conversation with him, I had a very, very, very a number of conversations on this, quite, quite, quite into the night at one point. He made a very uh, interesting uh, comment. He said, what? and there were two of them, one was on the practical level. He said, when he realized he was getting really caught up, that all the insights and understanding that he had come to in his monk's life, and others might say have come to on retreat life, seemed to have been overwhelmed by ego and its identification. He said, at the practical level, he decided, and this is how we bumped into each other, that he would use the resources of his local monastery frequently. 
and he has began going to the, lo- the, the monastery where the practice is go- taking place, what Tong, on the uh, edge of uh, Bangkok, and has been using that for meditation, for discussion, for the atmosphere and the support, and even more importantly, the reminders which it gives, just as a place like Gaia House and elsewhere also serves that importance. But the more deeper and important point which he made is with regard to emptiness. No easy thing to realize emptiness. No easy thing to discover and be at home with emptiness. And there's something sometimes which we really, about life, we really don't want to hear. We don't want to hear that the teachings of emptiness. And what his comment on it was for himself and his, ex- his experience as an architect, as a family man, as a householder, wage earner, he said, the ego cannot face, live with emptiness. It cannot bear the thought that what one does in terms of one's roles and functions and, and all the ego-satisfying activities really have no meaning at all. And it can't bear the truth of it. And all the things that we spend so much time involved in to build ourselves up, to make things important, and all the things that we want to do with our life, all the ways that that shows itself, does obscure and hide the emptiness of it. And the ego cannot live with this emptiness. Cannot even bear the thought that it might all be pointless and useless and purposeless. Sometimes, and as Eterit was pointing out, <coughs> who is now, incidentally, is 51 uh, years of age, but as he pointed out that sometimes it's as though we hardly realize that we understand the nature of emptiness. And sometimes we be, can really begin to appreciate it, the sense of that, the, the wonder of it, the mystery, the mystique of it, when ego is at work, when we're getting caught back up in that which doesn't matter at all and never did matter. And then we say to ourselves, what, what happened to that extraordinary emptiness? What happened to that sense of God? What happened to that which my mind just couldn't comprehend, but which enabled me to realize the futility of egotism, 
in ego activity. So I say that being in a situation like this is not just to be mindful through the day, though it will give us a certain protection and comfort, both here and elsewhere. It's not just to modify and reduce some of our egotisms, of our greed, selfishness, aggression, hostility, fear, anxiety, boredom, agitation, whatever the form. And it's not also just to have a rather quiet and comfortable state of mind while we are here. So as I said before, and say again, actually something more fundamental than all of that. Something about emptiness. And as I say, ego in its manifestation, the self, the idea of I, me, who wants to appear in this world to be special, important, successful, and have things going nice and neatly for oneself, isn't comfortable and can never be comfortable with emptiness. And here we're encouraged and invited to forget ourself, forget our life, and all that we imagine we are doing with it, for something which is not personal, not self, not of our life, which we call emptiness. So in that way, the, the teachings, <coughs> as they have always done for two and a half thousand years and longer, have consistently said to caring human beings, there are two levels of truth. The one level is the day-to-day -day truth, like we practice here, of practice. The truth of being mindful, the truth of developing uh, practice, of keeping in touch with one's meditations, of being a reverential, really, and a sensitive person to all little things that make up human existence. All of this we put into the world of the, the relative truth. We agree to make this truth, relative truth, felt. And also, it does, to its, uh, in its usefulness, give each person a sense of engagement with the world, of doing something which is valid and authentic. And it is. 
it gives authenticity to roles as well. Owing to relative truth, I can be a teacher. Owing to relative truth, you can be a listener. All of this we, we conspire together to make happen. But this world that we generate here, as with any other world that's generated in any other part of the world, comes through agreement, through collective agreement. We call it the relative truth, the relative world, the relative existence. But we are here to realize and understand emptiness. To understand ultimate truth. And that means this concoction, this agreement, the form has to collapse on itself while sitting not while sleeping <laughs> we know it collapses then <laughs> while being awake we have to awaken to the relative truth of things and that awakening to reveal to us ultimate truth the truth of emptiness. The emptiness of relative truth. What else? And in this ultimate truth, in this extraordinary emptiness, it can't be um, corrupted, can't be lost by the conventional, if we've realized it. Sometimes we have had, like Itrit, there may be tastes of ultimate truth, tastes of emptiness, the sense of it, in which the ego has no place, no function, no purpose. But there's a difference between tasting of, sensing of, and truly realizing. And we're here to realize so that we know what is play as play, what is theatre as theatre, what is conventional as conventional, what is form as form, and we know it just as that. And the ego has got no interest in it. None at all. So we can never become an architect. We can't become anything. Therefore, teachings say again and again and again, yes, practice. Yes, relative truth. Yes, form and formless. Yes, mindfulness throughout the day. Yes, look at the ego and not to give too much credit to it. 
but essentially ultimacy. Therefore, in realizing that, so there's no falling back into the wretchedness of becoming an architect. And then we live out our life with our respective forms architect, teacher, friend, this and that and the other, but nothing to do with ultimate truth. And with that being so clear, clear, clear to us, then suffering formed of roles and investment and becoming is something of the past. Because we've realized, we have understood what is what. So I thought that Etheret's position something which is a voice of quite a number of people who pass through Gaia House who are deeply concerned with insight and realization and who acknowledge the threat to ego activity that insight and revelation brings. So that we can appreciate things in such a way that we can say, genuinely say of ourselves that our ego activity is rather um, a tiny incident of life. a little bit of um, entertainment and our self is of no great consequence and we realize that well, actually it's then an immense relief so I say all of this is readily available to everybody in this room through the silence through not disturbing each other in any kind of conversations which is, which is necessary through the, the pillars of support through the foundations of mindfulness through the meditations and through particularly the willingness to realize and appreciate the truth of things. So then we know what is what, what is conventional, and what is ultimate.
May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes here, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.